morning. I'm Tim, and as one of the pastors here since 2016, let me welcome you once again to North Suburban Church. It's a good place to be, and so whether you found us online or whether you're here with us this morning, we are glad you found us. Um, something about us, you know, like every church, we do keep tabs on attendance and giving trends, but for a lot of churches, almost maybe by default, those two metrics become the measure of success. Nickels and noses sometimes you say, right? So we have felt like in recent years, biblically, there's, there's got to be more that matters than that. And so we've put together this imperfect tool, but it's a tool that we hope will help us measure congregational health maturity, spiritual growth over time. We call it our spiritual checkup. It's annual. This will be their second year doing it. We launched it last year. I'll be hitting your email inbox for round two this week. It's not at all meant to be a, well, you know, Joe got an A this year and Jill got a B minus. It's not that type of thing, right? Rather, it's a tool for you to use personally to see how your attitudes and habits and practices have changed year over year, right? So it's confidential. You won't put your name on it. Uh, you'll just have a PIN number that we send you that only our admin staff can match with your name. And once you've just answered these 33 questions, three benchmarks to each of our 11 marks of a disciple, you'll be sent the results along with your results from last year to see what changed over 12 months. And the thought is we'll just do this every year and see, see what we can glean from it. Uh, to be clear, just want to make sure we clear up this one thing. There's not going to be anybody saying, let's see here, uh, Genevieve's Bible reading really took a step back in 2022. What we'll look at is, as a congregation, are we leaning more into prayer or less into prayer? Are we quicker to extend grace, slower to extend grace, et cetera, you know, as a composite, right? So so when you see that email hit this week, uh, just take 10 minutes right away, knock it out. Uh, we hope it's something that could be an encouragement for you as you see what happens there over the years. With that, let's get into the word. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I recently overheard this conversation between a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I won't name who these boys were or what family they belonged to, but here's how it went. <clears throat> Five-year-old, you're wrong. Three-year-old, I'm not wrong. I know everything. Five-year-old, you don't know everything. What's 40 plus 40? Three-year-old, 80. Five-year-old, <laughs> See, the five-year-old didn't know what to do with this development, right? Because in his mind, once you can do 40 plus 40, you pretty much know everything, right? <laughs> At least about math, like you're really close to knowing it all, right? Like what kind of math could be harder than double-digit addition in your head? <laughs> Those kids can't even conceive, that when they've mastered all this addition and subtraction, there are functions called multiplication and division with their own memorization tables, and they don't even have categories. 
for the fact that one day there will be exponents and fractions, not to mention that cruel math teachers will start throwing letters into the math problems. There's no way I could even explain to them that somewhere along the way they'll need to use numbers that aren't real. But that those are different from irrational numbers, which though rational are actually real. Aren't they aren't rational, but are actually real. Right? See, their conception of all the math knowledge that exists is like this when the reality is this, right? Because of course, from the perspective of a math professor who has a PhD. All the math we just mentioned still only begins to lay the groundwork for doing real math, right? But you can't tell that to a three and a five-year-old. To a three and a five-year-old, the person who knows 40 plus 40 is pretty darn close to omniscience. <laughs> They're too obvious where I'm going with this. What if, what if we humans are predisposed to think about God like that three and five-year-old think about math. Like, man, I guess I don't know everything about God, but I don't know how much more there could be. When in fact our reality is that we presently see the smallest fraction of a fraction of who he is. And that maybe even some of what we think we know about him is actually incorrect. Would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30, if you haven't already? Proverbs chapter 30. Here we are in week two of our sermon series, No One Greater, The Attributes of God. We kicked it off last week by saying we're going to spend 21 weeks lifting our gaze heavenward, not to talk about how to practically live on this earth, so to speak, but rather to explore in depth what can be known of the God who is there. Last week we tried to set the stage for why our thoughts about God matter, what value is there in studying him, what goes wrong if we get him wrong. Today we move from there to say, okay, we want to know God, but hold up. To what degree can this God even be known? Like if my finite mind plagued by sin can know him, how great of a God can he really be? But on the flip side, if he can't be known, what's the point in trying to learn about him? And so there's this section of Proverbs 30 that speaks to this conundrum. This particular proverb we're told is written by someone named Agur. We know just about zero about him. We do know what the Proverbs are, though. They're a collection of guidance compiled from several different authors to give us skill for living, you might say. The Proverbs kick off, if you were to flip back to chapter 1 of Proverbs, you'd see that they kick off by stating the importance of wisdom. How especially young people can gain knowledge by fearing the Lord, but now in chapter 30, the Proverbs start winding down with this old man, Agur, lamenting about how he hasn't gained wisdom or knowledge of the Lord, despite all his best efforts. So follow along with me as I read and keep this big question in your mind. To what degree is it even possible to know God? Here it is, Proverbs 30, starting with verse 1. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the pronouncement. The man's oration to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukau. I am more stupid than any other person, and I lack a human's ability to understand. I have not gained wisdom, and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is the name of his son, if you know him? Every word of God is pure. 
He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. Let's walk back through those verses and follow Agur's train of thought. Uh, it goes something like this. There's an individual focus. I can't know God. Then a collective focus. None of us can know God. And then comes a surprising twist at the end. So first the individual focus. I can't know God. Verses 1 to 3. Some, some scholars think there's a clue here in verse 1 if you're looking at it. That this Agur may be a non-Israelite from an Arab family maybe. Whether he is or isn't, he shows admirable humility here when he admits, I was on a quest for understanding, but I failed miserably. You see it here? I'm more stupid than any other person. I lack a human's ability to understand. I have not gained wisdom, and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. He's like, I might as well be an animal. That's how little I know of the Holy One. He's up there. I'm down here. All my best efforts to comprehend him don't bring me any closer. All I can do is blindly conjecture about what he might be like. This reminds me, have you ever been walking past people who are engaged in a conversation in a public space, and what they're saying is just, to each other, is just so factually wrong that you're so tempted to just stop and correct them? A couple people nodding. It might just be my personality. Some of you are like, I'm horrified. I would never do that. And I don't think I would either. I can't remember ever actually stopping to correct someone. But sometimes I'm tempted to, you know. Like you're just minding your own business at the train station. And you hear this kid say to his friend, bro, just open up another credit card. It's like free money. <laughs> or you're at the park and you hear a mom say to another mom, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I started giving him a spoonful of bourbon every night and he just goes to sleep. And it, Excuse me, what? It takes a lot of self-control sometimes not to say, excuse me, I'm sorry. I thought I just heard you say, there's so many people walking around with so many misguided thoughts. And they don't even know it. But this guy, Ager, has come to a point where he's like, oh, shoot, I can see now that I'm one of the clueless ones. I've been walking around just throwing darts at the wall about God, hoping something sticks. I might as well be an animal because in reality, I don't know anything about him. What I'm saying is many of us are in that boat, maybe all of us, but this is uncommon self-awareness that Agur has. Right? I mean, for the sake of comparison, think about what Job had to go through before he got to this point. Like, yeah, he eventually sounds like Agur. He says in Job 42, surely I spoke about things I didn't understand, things too wondrous for me to know. But that's chapter 42. Before this, there's 37 chapters of him speaking in such a way that his friends listen to him and say, hey, Job, were you the first human ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on the counsel of God or have a monopoly on wisdom? Only after being rebuked by God does Job take the humble posture of Agur. Listen, it's, it's precisely in that place of humility that knowledge of God starts. Right? We can't know God until we realize that we don't know God. That we can't know God, not on our own. Yet so many really smart people waste their lives in a quest to know God on their own. Like Agur in his early days, they're clinging to this blind hope that their quest is going to result in wisdom. And so, like at the Build-A-Bear station at the mall, they pull from this inspirational text. They pull from this philosophical treatise. They pull from this free writing session that they had, from this pop psychologist, until they've constructed their personal Build-A-God. 
only to be nagged by the all-important question that we raised last week. Does the God I've imagined actually correspond to any real God that exists? Now you say, well, hold up. Last week, didn't we see in Romans 1 that God can be known, even from creation? And true, we did see this, didn't we? Paul's words in Romans 1. What can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he's made. As a result, people are without excuse. That's the basis for parts of the confession that we read this morning. But look, even here, we only get that faint picture of God if God has shown it to us. Not on our own striving. And even then, what can be known about God and creation here is so, so limited. A.W. Pink used this analogy, and I'll paraphrase. You find a watch lying in the ground, right? It is reasonable to assume there's a watchmaker. All those pieces didn't come together just in that way. But he goes further with that analogy to say, but if you start making conjectures about the watchmaker about his character, about his nature, about his likes and dislikes, just from looking at this watch, now you're not on solid ground at all, right? If you start trying to make conclusions about how many watchmakers there are, if the watchmaker is morally good or morally evil, if the watchmaker is loving or not, just or not, there's no basis for that just by looking at this watch. Right? And it's the same with God, right? We can look at sunsets and mountain ranges, and galaxies and say, whoa, there's got to be a powerful God. But beyond that, we don't have a clue. Right? Creation doesn't give us those answers. Not those answers. So that's Ager's experience for a good portion of his life. He's searching tirelessly for, without anything to show for it. No closer to knowing God than he was when he began. Question, have you ever reached this point? The point of recognition that no matter what you do, you can never figure out God. Unfortunately for many of us, it takes a, a crisis to reach this point. Like it took Job a crisis to reach this point. By crisis, I mean an event or series of events that doesn't fit the pattern of what we thought, uh, of what we, thought we knew about God. Right? Like, wait, I, I thought I understood God's formula. Like, God, I thought that when I obey you, you're supposed to bless me. God, I thought that when I pray for something good, you're supposed to give it to me. God, I thought that when I'm knocked down, you're supposed to pick me right back up. Why didn't you do what I wanted you to do? When the loved one we've been praying for dies, when the kid we've been doing our best to parent goes off the rails, when we ring in another New Year single despite pleading with God for a spouse, right? it's often only then that we're like, wait, do I even know God? Is it possible that the God I've imagined all this time is just the product of my own wishful thinking? If you're in that place of humility this morning, friend, there may actually be no better place to start. Because it's not just you. None of us can know God. And that's the second place Agur goes. None of us can know God. Notice the shift here from the first person in verses 2 and 3 to the second person addressed these questions in verse 4 who has gone up to heaven and come down who has gathered the wind in his hands who has bound up the waters in a cloak who has established all the ends of the earth what is his name what is the name of his son if you know 
there's a presupposition being made here. Namely, that knowledge of God is something only to be found in heaven. In other words, in order to know God, you have to go up there to get it. And who's done that? Moses hasn't. David hasn't. This author knows nobody who has gone up to heaven and come back down, having gained knowledge of God on their heavenly visit. And the answer is the same for the next three questions. Who has gathered the wind, bound up the waters, established all the ends of the earth? No human has. Only God can do any of those things. And there's maybe just a little hint of taunting here. Ager's like, uh, come on, tell me about God. Tell me what you've learned about the one who gathers the wind and puts water into clouds and establishes the earth. And of course we can't. It's not just Ager who's utterly unable to know God. We're all in the same boat. But catch how the line of questioning concludes. What is his name? And what is the name of his son? Time out, what's whose name? We said nobody was the answer to these questions. And what's the name of his son? What does that have anything to do with the topic at hand? Observation. When son is used in Proverbs, mentioned in Proverbs, it's almost always the one receiving instruction from a mother or from a father. What's his name? And what's the name of his son? I love the flourish at the end of the line of questioning. If you know, with these three words, Agar invites us just once more to please try to scale the infinitely high wall separating us from God. Try to gain knowledge of him so you can report back to us. But of course we can't. So summary of verse 4. Agar's problem is not just an individual problem. None of us have what it takes to know God. To use the words of Psalm 145, his greatness is unsearchable. So the, if the wall between us and God is infinitely high, if his greatness is unsearchable, if our attempts to know him are inevitably futile, why exactly are we about to spend 20 weeks in this sermon series trying to get to know God? Like, what's the point of trying to get to know a God who can't be known? What's the point of trying to describe a God who's indescribable, as we sang earlier? It is pointless to try to do so, unless there's somebody who can climb the wall. Or better, unless God would choose to climb the wall from his side to ours to make himself known to us. Like, if he ever did, if, for instance, if he had a son so to speak, through whom he would make himself known. If the son of his were to tell us some things that he knew about his father, then while we could still never know God fully, we could know some things about him truly. If only he'd make himself known. Of course, that's exactly what Agur is about to claim he did. Here's a twist. Verses 5 and 6, God has made himself known to us. I can't know God. None of us can know God. But God has made himself known to us. This is the point Agur has masterfully been aiming at since verse 1. In verses 1 to 4, Agur has been like, listen, I can't reach him. You can't reach him. He's out of reach for all of us. There's no point in our going out there trying to formulate an idea of what this out of reach God is like. But now Agur says, guess what? He has reached us. 
he has spoken and made himself known. So if you are feeling lost and clueless about God like I was, listen to the words God says about himself. They're pure, they're unadulterated, and they will protect you. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. But wait, if Agur's right, if the way to know God is not to piece together a bunch of data points we've collected to try to build a composite sketch of what we think he's like, but if instead, like Agur's suggesting, the only way to know God is to sit still on our side of the wall and wait to receive whatever words he decides to give us about himself, then the part we play in knowing God has fundamentally been transformed. You see? Because if God has spoken to us, then it becomes not a matter of formulating a conception of God, but rather a matter of submitting to whatever and whoever God has revealed himself to be. Put differently, if God found us when he knew we could never find him, then it becomes not a matter of probing the secret things that he hasn't told us about himself, but rather a matter of reordering our lives around whatever he has told us about himself. Every word of God here in verse 5, that's referring to scripture. Divine utterances given through human authors and preserved in what we now call the Bible. Which makes sense now of Agur's words in verse 4, the mention of the Son. What son did God ever give instruction to? If you were here on Christmas, you might remember, right? God did adopt a son back in Exodus 4. Remember that? Out of all the people on earth, he adopted the family of Israel as his son. He said, today you have become my son. Rescuing Israel from Egypt and initiating a special relationship with that family. And to honor the normal meaning of the word son in Proverbs, we could say it like this. Israel had become like the little son sitting under the instruction of God the Father in the form of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. When God wanted to reveal himself, he spoke pure words through the prophets of Israel, the son of God. That's why God could say something like this in Deuteronomy 30. Way back in the days of Moses, he says, This command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It's not in heaven. So you have to ask who will go up to heaven to get it for us and proclaim it to us so we may follow it. It's not only in heaven anymore, by Deuteronomy 30. What was previously only in heaven was brought down when God spoke to Israel, his son. And through Israel, his son, particularly through the prophets. And as such, people like Agur from outside of Israel, ended up gaining access to God through the writings of Israel's prophets. They got access to, the real, to real knowledge of the God of the universe, the one to whom they were previously ignorant. In other words, Agur is telling us here that his lifelong quest, his lifelong futile search for God, finally yielded fruit when he somehow encountered the words of God written by God's son, the family of Israel. Now, just because Agur is claiming to have access to true and pure words about God, we shouldn't think that he's claiming to know God exhaustively. We finite humans can't comprehend the fullness 
of what's infinite. So when Ezekiel gets to see the throne of God, do you remember how he talks? He says, something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli was above the expanse over their heads on the throne high above was someone who looked like a human. If you read through Ezekiel, you see these things over and over again. As the book goes on, he gets even more and more cautious. He's saying things like something like the appearance of the likeness of the resemblance of. Why so tentative? He's so tentative because just because God permitted the prophets to compare God's glory to things we already know so that we'd have some true idea of God, that doesn't mean we can ever have a full idea of God. So instead of brashly seeking to explore the secret things, we instead probe the depths of what he has made known about himself. The alternative would be to just add to God's words from our own thinking, conjecturing about what more might be known about him beyond what he has chosen to reveal to us. But Agur says, don't do that. You and I have nothing to contribute to the knowledge bank. By nature, we can't access God. So... Nothing, anything we add would turn what was pure into something impure. Michael Horton lays out the, a better path than adding to God's words. He says it like this. The highest wisdom and knowledge are found not in a grasping, seizing, ascending, mastering vision of pure ideas, but in a receiving, welcoming, seated, and descending recital of God's works in history. That's our posture. That we're called to, to know God. We'll get to our big idea in a moment. There's one more aspect of this, though, that I want to make sure we didn't miss. Did you notice how Agur so identifies God with his word that they are almost used interchangeably here? Did you notice that? Is God pure or is his word pure? Yes. Is God a shield or is his word a shield? Yes, in scripture. Will God rebuke or will his words rebuke? Yes. And this closest identification between God and his word personalizes the whole passage such that, as one commentator put it, our crisis of knowing is shown really to be a crisis of relationship. Our crisis of knowing God is really a crisis of relationship with God. When we come before him humbly to understand his word, And I use that word understand intentionally because that is what we're aiming to do, to stand under it, right? Not to to hold the Bible out as something that we stand above and analyze and pick apart and decide what we like and what we don't like, but to stand under it, submit to it. We don't just fill our brains when we do that. In our reading of the word, he himself becomes our shield. He ministers to us personally in the ways he's described. And that reflects the fundamental difference between knowing about God and knowing God. J.I. Packer is really good on this. If there's one book to read to accompany this series, it's this one, Knowing God. One of the many brilliant insights by Packer in this book is that getting to know God, not not just getting to know about him, but getting to know him, is far more complex than getting to know anyone or anything else, right? Just like you can choose to know about your favorite celebrity, but can't unilaterally choose to know your favorite celebrity, We can't just choose to know God. But to the extent that God freely chooses to welcome us into who he is, we can know the things about him that he chooses to reveal. And because he's revealed a great deal to us in simplified terms that our finite brains can understand, that means that ours is a faith for children. 
for people with Down syndrome, for people who couldn't afford to learn to read. And many such people will be not only with God forever, but will be among those least changed when we all get to heaven together. Those first and most honored in God's heavenly kingdom because they knew God. Jesus said, eternal life is knowing God. John 17, 3. But that's because knowing God, not knowing about God. And so it doesn't require brilliant intellect or scholarly training. Isn't it crazy that God would go to these lengths just so that we could know him? But our knowledge of him is always on his terms. And so our big idea today is this. Instead of seeking to formulate our own conception of God, let's humbly submit to the conception of himself he has revealed in his word. Instead of seeking to formulate our own conception of God, let's humbly submit to the conception of himself that he has revealed in his word. And that word, word there, is doing a lot of work in that sentence. It flags for us the existence of just one more layer to this passage that we didn't name, namely, that Agur wrote better than he knew back in verse 4 when he asked about the name of the son. Right? I mean, I hope you all were going to run me out of here if I wrapped up this sermon without going back there. What is his name and what is the name of his son? If you know. We can't know unless a mediator does go to heaven and come back down to us. And if Agur thought that he had a revelation of God through the prophets of Israel, he must have been ecstatic when he got to heaven sometime after writing this and learned about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God par excellence. Born several centuries after Agur wrote these words, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God who otherwise couldn't be known. He's God in the flesh. He's the exact representation of God's being. Who knows the Father? Jesus tells us who knows the Father. Jesus says no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Jesus is the Son from Proverbs 30. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Jesus tells us who. John chapter 3 if I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So, yes, Agur, Israel revealed God in part through the words of God spoken through the prophets. But in these last days, God made himself known most fully through his Son, through the Word who became flesh. And I love how Michael Horton says it. He says, although we cannot reach God, he can reach us. And has done so in his preached and written word, in which the incarnate word is wrapped as in swaddling cloths. I love that poetic picture, the relationship between Jesus, who's God's incarnate word, and the Bible, which is God's written word. Jesus wrapped in the scriptures as in swaddling cloths. The scriptures all pointing to him, including Proverbs 30. Because God has given us his written word, and because he's given us the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, we can know him. Ne never fully, but truly. Like when we mastered addition and subtraction and thought, what more could there be? Only to discover multiplication and division. Then we said, surely that's it. 
until we met fractions and decimals and algebra and trigonometry and integrals. That's how we will always be in our knowledge of God for eternity future, even in heaven. We won't know God fully even there. Like the PhD in math, we'll just be more aware of how much we don't know, and that will never end because we're limited not just by our sin now, but by our finiteness as well. So every day in heaven, if you can picture it, will be another day of God supernaturally expanding our capacity such that we can know more of him today than we knew yesterday. And then tomorrow we do it again for billions and billions of years and trillions of years forever, right? That's why it's not hyperbole when Jesus says eternal life is knowing God. What we're doing in this series is seeking to know God. And in this sense, we're spending our next 20 Sunday mornings practicing for what heaven will be. If the attraction of heaven were gold streets and pearly gates, those would get boring after 5,000 or so years. Just like all our shiny things here get boring. The only thing that can make life even worth living for trillions of years is that there's an ultimate treasure that we keep getting more and more of without ever reaching the bottom. And that's what we have in God. Let's pray. God, we want to know you. We thank you for making yourself known to us such that we don't have to scramble around and grope for you in the darkness. But rather, we can take a seat and submit ourselves to the words that you have revealed about yourself and ultimately submit ourselves to your incarnate word, your son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of your being and to whom we owe our lives. Help us to get to know you better this morning and throughout this series. In Jesus' name, amen.